0: Hi everyone, we are Julia's parents, Antonio, and Jeannie, this week on the show,
1: Kritika Malekarjana, TV Guide Features Editor,
0: and Hayes Brown, BuzzFeed World Senior Reporter and Editor.
1: All right, let's start
2: the show.
3: Oh hearing my
2: name from your mom's dulcet toes. I
3: know. Wow, what little a genie kid. little Antonio. <laughs>
1: what a great way to start this off. Yeah, yeah.
3: my pocket parents. <laughs> <laughs> from NPR, it's been a minute. I'm Julia Furlan, in for the illustrious Sam Sanders. He's off reporting, discovering things. My guests this week, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Pratika Malikarjana, Features Editor at TV Guide. Hello. Hayes Brown, BuzzFeed World Senior Reporter and Editor. Welcome. Hey, Julia. So, as you know, every week we start the show with a song. This song is a song called Yo Soy Boricua Pa' Que Tu Lo Sepas.
1: hey, hey, (laughs) hey, hey.
3: hey. (laughs) You may have heard this song a lot this week being played by protesters in Puerto Rico as well as in the larger diaspora. And those protests against the governor in response to a scandal that was involving sexist and homophobic text messages, they worked. He resigned on Wednesday. And this song is sort of an anthem that's chanted a lot in these moments. And... Honestly, it looked like a World Cup win, almost, at the end. Yeah, I
2: honestly was like, for one quick second on Twitter, I saw a photo, and I didn't read the actual text, and I was like, is it Carnival? Did I miss it? And I was, like, (laughs) looking through the actual pictures, I was like, no, 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 these are protest signs. Oh, this is happening in BR. Okay, okay, got it. Exactly,
3: exactly. But
2: I I will say I love that protest energy. Yeah, Yeah. big protest
3: energy. And this song is actually from 1995. It's an artist named Taino and the video I highly recommend everyone look it up. It is a, a an artifact of 90s <laughs> magic. We've got like rib isolation. Oh my gosh. Wow. We've got like a baggy uh like a sort of baggy hat, like, like a Like baggy tangle
1: almost. Yeah. Oh, it's it's yeah, really it's
3: it's, yes. it's it's fantastic. It's a really I can like
1: almost see like the neon <laughs> reds and yellows in my head just yeah. from the music. <laughs>
3: Okay, we are going to start our week, as we always do, by asking each of us to describe our week of news in only three words. Hayes, yes. you are up first. Alrighty. What are your three words?
1: Okay, my three words this week are, read the report. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my three words this week.
3: It sounds like a fourth grade teacher. Ah, yes. (sighs)
2: You're about to flick the lights on enough to get
3: everyone's attention.
1: You are not getting to play Heads Up 7-Up during the next indoor (laughs) recess if you keep this up.
3: But it's not about fourth grade. It's about the government.
1: It is, in fact. It is about Robert Mueller and his eponymous report that he finally testified in front of Congress about this week. Mm -hmm. And the... One of the biggest takeaways you can possibly get from his entire day's worth of testimony is just go read the report.
3: Does anybody care about this other than journalists and, and politics people? Well, I think? think that's sort of the point, right, Hayes? Is yes. that like we
2: need people to care. So we need the guy who did the investigating to talk about it. But he's making us read the report.
1: Yeah. So the situation is, and here's the thing, we knew this going into this testimony. Robert Mueller, former FBI director, he's been really reticent to speak in public because he doesn't want to push any ideas beyond what's actually in the written report. In his insistence that he not go beyond the scope that he was given by the Department of Justice when he was first named uh, special prosecutor, he, he felt like, nope, I can't do that. I cannot say I cannot answer your questions about, well, did you mean impeachment when you said acts that Congress could take? He's like, right. I can't, please, I, please read the report.
3: Right. Here's a question. There's a lot of focus on what happened in the hearings Mm -hmm. and how he wasn't very, like, telegenic. He wasn't very, Mm -hmm. sort of, like, charismatic, which is literally not his job. Um, (laughs) The FBI director trying to win beauty contests. (laughs) (laughs) But... I mean, there wasn't a ton of focus on the actual thing that happened, which is that our elections were meddled with and that our, you know, I don't know, democratic processes is in the balance. Yes. Why aren't people talking about that more?
1: Because I think um, it seemed like the Democrats weren't really thinking about an overarching narrative. They got a few good sound bites out of him, but there was no real connection for people who might have been watching the whole way through or even just tuning in as to what the bigger picture actually was with the whole report. Meanwhile, on the Republican side of things, their focus was on the sort of meta narrative, which is that, you know, there was an unfair investigation. Uh, Trump is unfairly targeted in, in this. Some... To be fair, some Congress people had really good, sharp lines of questioning. But if you want good questioning, one of the last places on earth you want to go is the U.S. Congress.
3: <laughs> well, what are what is Congress doing about it, like outside of this hearing?
1: So outside of this hearing, so there has been a push, especially among Democrats, to beef up election security even more, to make it mandatory to especially have paper ballots so that you can audit an election, go back and say, OK, this is what the electronic votes say doesn't match up to what's on paper. Mm -hmm. But Republicans, especially Senate uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, are saying, no, we don't need that. We've done everything we need to do ahead of the next election. Uh, We think that our system is more secure now than it was in 2016. We don't need to do more. McConnell, it fits within his ideology that he thinks that it's the state's problem. The states should be the ones running their own elections. It should not be a federal issue.
3: I mean, there was just a congressional report this week that Russia actually targeted voting systems in all 50 states.
1: Yes, they they were in our systems digging around. Uh, they say that there were no actual votes changed, which has always been uh, the case. But it's a mess. I think that this whole situation is wild because over the last two almost three years we've had a bunch of different narratives be spun that most of them are maybe like a quarter to half up to three quarters true but unraveling those and getting to what's actually the case is hard like on the election hacking thing it was it's been really hard to convince people like no the story is not that russia changed votes and that's why trump won or no the Mueller report did not try to say that yeah, uh, Putin and Trump were personally on the phone talking about this campaign. Right. No, the report said they were willing to take the Russian help. They were willing to go along with it, but there was nothing, no, like, actual links between the two.
3: Right, right. Thank you, Hayes. Um, Now it's my turn. My three words are, who's this for? Hmm. Um, And it's because... Beyonce, a little indie artist you may have heard of, (laughs) um, released an album called The Gift, which is a sort of companion to the soundtrack for the live-action Lion King remake that she is also in playing Nala. Nala. Um, I was a huge Lion King fan wasn't mm-hmm. growing right. up. It was a big deal for me. So I, I haven't seen the movie yet. But The Gift, I've listened to. Um, and there's a lot of back and forth about this one particular song on the album mm-hmm. and who's it for. Uh, let's hear it a little bit of it. It's like a trophy when Naomi's walking. She needs an ask for a pretty dark skin. Pretty like Lupita when the camera's closing. Drip broke the levee when my Kelly's
4: rolling.
3: The song is called Brown Skin Girl, and I have been listening to it on repeat, no joke, for several days. Um And it shouts out Lupita Nyongo and Kelly Rowland, basically, all dark skinned black women. But there was some sort of back and forth uh, where light-skinned and non-black women of color were sort of saying that the song was for them. Huh? <laughs> <Critiquing> <laughs> Say more. What? Um. Yeah. I mean, it's basically there's like there was like a visceral sort of tug of war about who gets who gets this Beyoncé song. Okay. Ma'am, It's
2: <laughs> not even a question. Uh, <laughs> she says it in the song, guys. It's in the text. (laughs) This is
1: not the Mueller report, people. (laughs) Yeah, this is not the Mueller
2: report. I I also, like, don't understand why people need to claim things like that. Like, I love Beyonce. I love all all of her visual albums. But, like, yes, of course, I understand that I'm secondary
3: to the people that she actually wants to talk to, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I think that it comes back to representation and how... We need to focus on the people who need representation most mm-hmm. as often as possible. And dark-skinned women of color are the people who need the most representation because they are the least represented in our media culture and in general.
2: And we also get paid less to deal with your stuff.
3: Yeah, with all of the... Myriad, you know. <laughs> myriad, myriad stuff. The myriad stuff. fall in love With you all of your
2: glory Your skin is not only dark Tell
3: your story um, There's also another thing that I wanted to talk about with this album, which is um, a point that was made beautifully by our friend and former colleague, also Hannah Georgis. Oh, love Um her. She wrote a wonderful piece in The Atlantic that I thought really spoke to how American audiences understand Africa. Um, basically, The Lion King takes place... I mean, it's a fictional movie, but it takes place in East Africa. It takes right. place ostensibly in Kenya. Be- and Beyonce on The Gift collaborated with all of these artists and really like uplifted a lot of different styles coming out of uh, Africa. Mm-hmm. But all of the artists that she collaborated with are from West Africa or South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is worthy of a, a moment of critique, a moment of thinking about Beyonce in a slightly more complicated way like what are the choices that she's making here when the movie is entirely sourced from and and using lots of references to East Africa but the music is not at all
1: so I mean one of the things that I think is fascinating when you think about pan-Africanism is like people don't really think about the regions of Africa when they say that like if you're going to call something like Pan Asian and it's just East Asia, you're gonna get called <laughs> out for that.
3: Right. <laughs> so right.
1: I, I I don't see why it's so hard to have that same concept when it comes
2: to the continent of Africa.
3: Right, exactly. Okay. Kritika, You are up. What are your three words?
2: My three words this week are redefining modern mythology. Ooh. Deep.
3: Well, sort of. We're talking about
2: superheroes, gang. Hey! hey.
3: Uh, I don't care about superheroes. I super do.
2: Don't worry. I'm on this one, Julia. I know.
3: I planned this. Oh,
2: man. Whew. This is a all right, rough crowd. 50-50 here. <laughs> um, so I'm sure as half of this room knows, uh, San Diego Comic-Con was last weekend and a a ton of news came out mm-hmm. of what is basically the entertainment industry's like biggest industry event at this point point. Um, and Marvel's Phase 4 is insane Like the movies are all wild, they're introducing new teams that we haven't seen before and like the big team up that's coming out is um, The Eternals which is directed by Chloe Zhao who is a Chinese American director who has done like beautiful indie dramas in the past basically as another like sort of Marvel like picking up an auteur and Mm. unleashing them on a huge big budget movie kind of thing but the Eternals is amazing because the cast is like it's so
3: stacked it's insane like Angelina Jolie Selma Hayek next to Kumail Nanjiani right Right. so basically a bunch of new superhero movies many of them with non-white people
2: yes and I think the thing that Marvel has always been smart about is they know that they can't put out the same dramatic arc over and over and over again, but I—it's—it's it's really interesting to me because like Marvel is doing all these like massive pushes with diversity, and they're doing it in a way that's sort of natural like these stories are not being written by white people featuring brown faces they're hiring the behind the scenes talent to push it forward which is why they're having huge successes with you know like movies like Black Panther which I saw and loved yeah right. that's a superhero movie for people who don't know anything about superheroes Mm -hmm. and like it's also a superhero movie for people who know everything about superheroes Mm -hmm. Marvel's really good at that and like the thing I think I've been seeing a lot in the entertainment sphere is like is all this franchise building and empire building like gobbling up all of the decent minority talent? Mm. Like, are we are we buying into this like big commercial global franchise because we want that money and we want that fame and we want that power at the cost of telling original stories? Mm. But like, that's an irrelevant point for when we're talking about what Marvel is actually doing in terms of pushing diversity because the more these franchises make money and the more um, Bigger and the like, the bigger audience that they build, it reminds Hollywood continuously that Black and Brown people are marketable. Right,
1: and I I think that that's also been bleeding into a little bit. I know it's still Disney, but the Star Wars franchises, those yes. are becoming more diverse. Star Trek has always been a hugely diverse franchise, but you see that being played up even more now in Discovery mm-hmm. with a Black woman as the lead, with Michelle Yeoh having that major guest starring role in season one.
3: But I just want to say one thing, which is that like these companies are not doing doing this out of the goodness of their hearts no, or no, doing no. it because it's financially a sound decision. Right. That is something that cannot be stated more clearly. Okay, time for a break. Coming up, we're going to talk about how the technology that makes life convenient is also making the lives of low-wage workers incredibly dark and grim and difficult. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. We will be right back.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rothy's. Rothy's are the everyday flats for life on the go. Stylish, versatile, fully machine washable, and they go with everything, from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. Best of all, there's zero break-in period thanks to their woven design, seamlessly crafted from recycled water bottles. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns and exchanges. Find out why BuzzFeed called them their forever shoes at rothys.com slash minute. Support also comes from Earwolf Media, presenting Spanish Aki Presents, a brand new comedy podcast highlighting the best of the best of Latinx comedy and culture. Hosted by comedians Carlos Santos, Riza Licea, Oscar Montoya, and Tony Rodriguez. If you're asking yourself, do I need to know Spanish to enjoy this podcast? The answer is no, but you might learn a little along the way. Listen to Spanish Aki Presents in your podcast app now, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
3: Hey, before we get back to the show, you just heard us talking about the testimony this week from former special counsel Robert Mueller. If you want a detailed breakdown of what he said and what it meant and all of the political ramifications, go listen to this week's episodes from the NPR Politics podcast. They've got you covered. You can understand everything as you need to. They've got you, you know. Okay, back to the show. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Julia Furlan, a.k.a. not Sam Sanders, but trying. Hello again to my guests, Kritika Molly Karjana, features editor at TV Guide, and Hayes Brown, BuzzFeed World senior reporter and editor. Hi. Hello.
1: Hello.
2: I'm
3: glad we didn't say that
2: like creepy twins this time. I
1: know. I <laughs> specifically paused. I gave a beat for you, and then I came in. Yeah,
2: I'm also glad that you knew that
3: my time to shun was, was first. first. Oh, yes. of course. <laughs> yes. You're first on the bill. It's okay. Yeah. So I have a question. How dependent are you two on Amazon? Is it central to your life?
1: Uh, we live in New York. Fortunately, yeah. yes.
3: Yeah. Like if you live in a
2: city where you can't drive, Mm -hmm. Easily.
1: Even like the little things like I know that's not even at the Target down the street. I live in a very convenient spot. There's a Target right by me, which is not the case for most of New York City. Right. And still there's stuff like, well, I guess I got to go to Amazon for that and order it, I guess.
3: I mean, these things make our lives easier, not just Amazon, but things like Uber and TaskRabbit and Seamless or uh, DoorDash. Mm Mm-hmm. But it really makes me uncomfortable, the ubiquity of it and the fact that you don't have to interact with human beings mm-hmm. and the reports that I've read on the way that the that many of these companies treat their employees right. and the yeah. lives of low-wage workers – I talked all about that with Emily Gindelsberger. She just wrote a piece for Vox last week about fast food worker burnout. And she's also the author of a new book all about low-wage jobs called On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. Mm -hmm. Emily spent time working at an Amazon fulfillment warehouse, at a call center, and at a McDonald's for the book. And she told me that the specific ways that technology is being used in these jobs means that workers are surveilled at every single moment of their day in kind of all low-wage jobs everywhere. The problem is
5: that people are now, or like management is now able to track worker productivity sort of down to the second at whatever job you're doing. And it's increasingly difficult to work those jobs because now you sort of have this digital manager sort of lurking over your shoulder constantly uh, with a stopwatch sort of like, glaring at you whenever you do things that, you know, from the outside might look like screwing around on the clock, but are actually just human necessities, like going to the bathroom or like talking to coworkers sometimes, like not even for very long, you know, taking a drink of water. And so you get into this sort of feeling of paranoia constantly at work about being a human being.
3: Right, and also you're talking about a 12-hour shift with two 15-minute breaks and a 30-minute uh, break. Is that what's going on?
5: Kind of at Amazon, uh, at the Amazon uh, fulfillment center where I worked, my shift was 6:30 uh, a.m. to 6 p.m., and there was uh, and you clocked out for a half-hour lunch, so it was technically 11 hours of work. You were there for 11 and a half, right. and you had your two 15-minute breaks. But uh, yeah, the thing that was difficult about those 15-minute breaks was you carried around the scanner with you and uh, it constantly tracked what you were doing and measured second by second how much time you had left to complete whatever subdivision of a task that you were on at that moment. So your break started at the last scan that that you made. So you would scan something to finish your task and then you would you know, leave your scanner there and go. You know, go outside, have a smoke, eat something, talk on the phone, whatever. Um, and then you had to be back in at your back at your cart and scan the next item by exactly fifteen minutes from the last scan you did. And when you're working way out in a warehouse like that, uh, you know it can take. 5 minutes easy to just
3: get to the exit. Right. Yeah, you were you said that you were walking like 15 miles a day or something like that.
5: Yeah, I snuck a step counter in and just on average it was between 13 and 16.
3: Yeah. Um so what does this do to people's mental health, which is a, a lot of what the piece you wrote last week is about? How does this affect mental health? What does it look like in in the real life of of folks who are you know, flipping our burgers and uh, delivering boxes in Amazon and answering the phones in the call centers? Well, it takes different forms for different jobs. Um, in the call centers, a
5: lot of them mentioned specifically depression and anxiety, and even like a really worrying amount of su- uh, suicidal ideation that went along with these jobs where you basically have a customer's always right policy in place. And you just have to put up with being screamed at and abused by people, and you're not allowed to escape. When you can't defend yourself when someone is screaming at you, and if you know you are going to be punished for defending yourself when someone's screaming at you, it's really hard. It takes a lot of energy. And when you have to do it on a regular basis, it's really terrible for your mental health. Right. I had it, I think, easier than almost all of my coworkers in that I knew... Through the entire book that if I lost these jobs or when I quit these jobs, my family was not going to go hungry. I don't have kids. And I always had that in the back of my mind. I had this like red button that I could push to if something got real bad,
3: I could get away without any consequences. Right. And most people who are in that situation, most of your colleagues in those moments at those jobs were did not have that privilege, did not have. Yeah. um, They were they're trying to feed their family. They're trying to keep things afloat. It's it's a grim reality. It feels really dark. Um, We've seen some workers go on strike. We've seen workers make efforts to unionize. There's an ongoing fight for a $15 minimum wage, at least in in low-wage work that's not gig economy-based. Do you think things are going to get better for low-wage workers in America, Emily? I am
5: surprisingly optimistic after writing this whole book in that I feel like there's sort of been a Tipping point, and it's been just in the past couple years about workers suddenly sort of realizing that this system is not serving them anymore. That this system is not what we are told it is. That it's this American dream ideal of if you work hard, if you do your best, if you make yourself indispensable, they'll you'll be taken care of. You know the, the companies will you know provide for you and reward you for your hard work um and it really isn't like that anymore and i think people are s- sort of starting to be cognizant that it's all the same fight right and that's something if that's something that all workers across the political spectrum can agree with then that's a really formidable political block
3: Right. It feels like a movement for humanity and and empathy in the larger sense of the word where workers are basically saying, you know, please stop doing this inhumane stuff to us. And well, I guess a lot remains to be seen. Um, Emily Gindelsberger, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Emily Gindelsberger. Her book is called On the Clock, What Low-Wage Work Did to Me and How It Drives America Insane. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Julia Furlan. Back here with my panelists, Kritika Mali Karjana and Hayes Brown. How often are you guys thinking about the people who make our lives easier?
1: More and more lately, I find. uh, But it's going to be interesting when a tipping point hits And as we get to the point that there is this, you know, saturation of people who are in these service-based jobs, uh, you're going to start to see, I think you have seen in like the push for the $15 minimum wage, for example, where on the one side, people are like, fast food workers, they don't need that much money. They don't need, they don't deserve this. But I think when you get to the point that literally like everyone knows someone, no matter their level of education, who has had to put themselves through this, that's going to be a real tipping point in terms of trying to push... Forward more reforms so that the actual workers are getting more of the money as opposed to the corporations themselves.
2: I also think that's going to happen more quickly than it ever has in the past because Mm. now we live in an era where we can stream everything. Like companies get away with a lot, but they are held accountable more quickly. Yeah. You know?
3: Okay. It's time for a break. When we come back, we will play. The hardest game in the world. Oh, man. What? Just kidding. It's not that hard. It's called Who Said That? Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> After the break.
0: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment at your convenience. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com minute to learn more.
3: Bitcoin needs a huge amount of electricity to power its computers. And that has created some very unique
2: money-making opportunities in different parts of the world. It is also causing some governments concern. Listen and subscribe to The Indicator from NPR.
0: Hey,
4: y'all, Sam Sanders here. I know what you're thinking right now. I thought you weren't hosting this week. You are correct. I'm not hosting the show this week. You're in great hands with Julia. But I had to pop in from some other reporting projects to let you know I'm doing a live taping of It's Been a Minute in Washington, D.C., uh, in conjunction with Politics and Prose at the George Washington University at their listener auditorium on September 11th. That's a Wednesday. And I'm going to tell you who my very special guest is for that live show at GW in D.C. in September. Drum roll. Malcolm Gladwell. He is the best-selling author and podcast host, author of books like The Tipping Point and so many great other ones. We're going to talk about his newest book coming out soon. It's going to be fun, and I want you to be there because I'm probably going to wear a suit, and I'm very proud of that. So uh, come hang with me at GW at Listener Auditorium on Wednesday, September 11th. You can get tickets and more information at nprpresents.org, nprpresents.org. And uh, I'm going to ask Malcolm on stage how I can get my hair to do like his because I love it okay back to Julia hope to see you there keep enjoying the show you're listening to
3: it's been a minute from NPR the show where we catch up on the week that was I'm Julia Furlan in for Sam Sanders trying real hard to fill his shoes and I'm here with two wonderful guests Kritika Molly Karjana features editor at TV Guide and Hayes Brown BuzzFeed World senior reporter and editor are you ready oh, for man. the main game of the show? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I feel like I, I
2: should look through my news. I, I, feel, uh, like <laughs> to, I, feel, I
3: feel like, like I'm like. going
1: to crush Krutika and yeah. it's going to, she's going to be really mad at me for a minute.
3: Uh. <laughs> the game is called Who Said That? <laughs> the, who said said it? It? the rules are pretty simple. I share a quote from some news of the week and you have to guess who said that or at least know the story that it refers to. And with that, here is your first quote. You are the most disgustingly morally bankrupt person I have ever had the displeasure of working with. You do not care about your constituents. You do not care about anyone but yourself. I have no idea who this is, but I want to know those. I
2: I got this
1: one, though. This was the resigning comms officer of a British MP, and this was his mic drop on Twitter.
3: Wow. What a way to quit. (laughs) Wonderful. The guy's name is Gareth Arnold, staffer for Sheffield Hallam MP Jared O'Mara from O'Mara's own Twitter account. Outstanding. Outstanding. So the Labor Party suspended O'Mara in 2017 for making allegedly homophobic and sexist comments. He quit the party, became an independent, and Gareth Arnold, in this Twitter thread this week... Also said, Sheffield Hallam deserves so much better than you. You have wasted opportunities which people dare not even dream of.
4: Wow.
3: <laughs> okay, well, we've got one, one point for Hayes, zero for Kritika. But this is
2: going to be a rough game. For uh,
3: <laughs> I know. Okay, are you ready? Oh, yeah. Question two. The quote is, I don't feel comfortable buying clothes from a company that thinks I shouldn't be the size that I am. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, I'm so glad I stumped you. This was mine. Hold on. Hold on. I don't know. I'm trying to think. It's a company where you buy clothes that has a plus size line. Mm-hmm. Asus.
1: Is this about the? Scandal where Forever Twenty One sent diet bars along with their clothes. What?
2: Yes. Are you serious? Hey. Are you serious?
1: Yes, they in did the that in the
3: packaging. In the, in
1: packaging, the packaging, There they
2: were
3: Atkins bars. There Atkins were, like, bars? Promotional Atkins bars in the plus size, and it appeared to be um, in the plus size only. Clothing. Um, the wow. quote is from a person named Gigi who ordered plus size clothing from Forever 21 and received an Atkins bar in the box with the clothing. Mm. Gigi was not alone. Multiple women who had ordered plus size clothing received the same thing. Wow. I can't say anything I want to say on NPR.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Great. Oh, gosh. So, um, Forever 21 apologized for sending the diet bars to the women, and they said, from time to time, Forever 21 surprises our customers with free test products from third parties in their e-commerce orders. The freebie items in question were included in all online orders across all sizes and categories for a limited time and have since been removed. This was an oversight on our part, and we sincerely apologize for any offenses may have caused our customers, as this was not our intention in any way. So... I mean, just
1: leaning for, for your punishment forever. Twenty-one.
3: Okay, oh, hey, hey, so we've got two. Uh, this last one is for it's from a my Twitter. The quote
2: is okay. me. No, <laughs> is, is
3: it going to be an easy layup for me? It's. I think it's. It's. It, it might be. You might get it.
1: Wow, <laughs> the confidence. So,
3: <laughs> so okay, that senator whose name I have forgotten is now himself dead. And I am very much alive. Nancy Pelosi. Critica.
2: No.
1: That was Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) Yes. RBG. Yes.
3: Even better. RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was throwing some shade at naysayers who doubted her longevity. Um, Like late Kentucky Senator Republican Jim Bunning, who said in 2009 that she would die from the pancreatic cancer that she was diagnosed with.
1: There was a senator... I, th- I think it was after the pancreatic cancer, who announced with great glee that I was going to be dead within six months. That senator, whose name I've forgotten, is now himself dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I am very much alive.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that little,
3: that small <laughs> chuckle.
2: Yes. Oh, oh, man. I hope that we all get
3: come up of that level on our enemies. To be clear, he also apologized later for the comments. But, okay, you know. fair,
2: fair, fair. Anyway,
3: fair. Ruth Bader, may we all have a Ruth Bader Ginsburg level of polite, savage mm-hmm. <laughs> destruction, you know, in yeah. in our hearts today and this week. Hazy won.
1: <laughs> I think I have a thousand and two points.
3: Here's what you won. Absolutely nothing. Ay. Got that public radio winning.
2: <laughs> I will say I love my reward is not seeing Hayes rewarded. That's
3: right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Everybody so wins. So who really won? Everybody wins. Um, and that concludes <laughs> the hardest game in the world. Who said that? Now is the time to end the show as we always do. Each week we ask you to share with us the best thing that happened to you all week you share such good ones with Sam, and I cannot wait to listen to this. Um, are you ready, Kritika and Hayes? Yes, I am. Okay, best things. Let's hear it. This is Sarah. And this is Rachel. One year ago, we called you to let you know that the best part about our week was that we moved to New York City. Currently, we're hiding out in our hallway from the mouse in our apartment. Despite the mouse, we've re-signed our lease and are excited to continue to call ourselves New Yorkers.
4: Have a great week. Bye.
0: This is Mark in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The best thing that happened to me all week was having the opportunity to be an officiant at a wedding, and I was really honored to fill that role for my friends.
3: The best thing to happened to me all week is welcoming home my husband from a seven-month
0: deployment.
1: The best part of this week was being told, excellent job throughout the week by my supervisor.
0: The best part of my week was surviving two full days of circus camp for adults. It was challenging, and exhausting, and totally worth it. This is
2: Jesse from Chicago, and the best thing that happened to me all week is I took a weekend trip to New Orleans uh, to visit my best friend, and also to propose to my boyfriend who said yes, Uh, so I guess now he's my fiancé. My name's Laura and I live in New Hampshire, the best thing that happened to me this week is that after over two and a half years as a family, I finally have adopted both of my children. My daughter just turned seven and my son just turned three. January of this year, I adopted my daughter and last Friday, July 19th, I adopted my son. I'm a single parent and my daughter calls us a triangle family. I love that because the triangle is structurally the strongest shape. Thanks for letting me share this great news and thanks for your show.
3: Oh, that wasn't
1: fair to end on that one.
3: Yeah. Oh no I feel uplifted and overwhelmed <laughs> Um, I say with tears in my voice Thank you to those listeners Sarah and Rachel, Mark, Katie, Maria, Jesse Congrats on your engagement And Laura, congrats on your triangle family <sighs> And thank you to all the listeners Who share their best things with us this week We do listen to them all Even if we can't include them here on the show Thank you again to my guests, my triangle family, for this for this recording <laughs> oh. session. Structurally, the strongest shape for Thank audio. The three of us, yeah, yes. exactly. Um, Kritika Malikarjana, Features Editor at TV Guide. Hayes Brown, BuzzFeed World, Senior Reporter and Editor. We're going out on the triumphant song, Yo soy Boricua, Pa' que tú lo sepas. And I encourage you all to do a little electric slide with your people this weekend. You know, just do it. Why not? Why Community. not? Community. Yes. yes. It's Been a Minute was produced this week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry with help from Sophia Boyd. Our editors are Jordana Hochman and Alex McCall. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss, the senior vice president of programming at NPR, is Anya Grundman. Okay, until next time, my friends, thank you so much for listening. I'm Julia Furlan. Be nice to yourself.
0: Bye.